You're listening to The Shake, a podcast to inspire, motivate, and push the cannabis culture forward. Brought to you by Trio Solution. My name is Jerry Marzaria. You may recognize me from the past three seasons of The Shake podcast or as co-host of Sports Cannabis. This season, we're sitting down with leaders and companies to talk about their process, marketing and branding, data insights, lessons they've learned, and how to make an impact in the cannabis industry. With cannabis conventions on the horizon, it really helps our podcast understand the climate and talking to the people who are directly making a difference. When we walk the floors of these conventions, we can really see the effect that Detonate Cannabis Agency has had with licensed producers that are being featured. Detonate Cannabis Agency specializes in all things print for the medical and recreational cannabis markets, from packaging and print collateral to experiential pop-ups and custom trade show booths. Detonate Cannabis Agency understands the importance of standing out from the competition even when they've created most of the booths in the room. Print? Promo? Detonate Cannabis Agency can help you with that. Visit their Instagram at Detonate Cannabis Agency or website www.detonatecannabis.com to make an appointment now. Today, we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Basim Hana on The Shake Podcast, and we're excited to learn about everything he's accomplished and continues to do so and push the industry forward. How are you and where are you joining us from today? I'm very good. I'm joining from Mississauga, Ontario, uh, which is a suburb of Toronto, GTA, I guess. Yeah, wonderful. And and how have you been keeping despite the current climate? I know we're all transitioning to work at home life. What are you doing to keep sane? I have like a routine. The days where I get up and change out of my, my PJs right away and the days where I work out earlier rather than later or if at all, like my day fundamentally gets better. And then I'm pretty busy with work and I have two young kids, a five-year-old and a three-year-old who occupy all of my time. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the one thing that I've heard from a lot of different industry reps is that although work from home has been, you know, fun and enjoyable because you are getting a little bit more time to spend with your family, it's also blurred the lines from where your day starts and shuts off. Have you found that as well? Yeah, very much so. The, just the combination of working, being a dad, or, and like sometimes a school teacher, and uh, like my down per, my downtime my personal family time mm-hmm. it's definitely been challenging to manage especially at the beginning now i think that everybody's kind of used to you know quote unquote new normal but it certainly has been trying <laughs> yeah no i agree with you it seems like there's never a point where you're not getting an email and then there's always the point where you feel like you have to respond uh but just to yeah. keep to keep going you know you're a bit of a serial entrepreneur um, and you're known to be behind some of the biggest brands within cannabis. But I was hoping before we take a deep dive into your career and cannabis and the current state of the industry, I was hoping you can give us an understanding of your education and your past industry experience prior to pivoting into the cannabis industry. Sure. I went to school at the Richard Ivey School of Business in Western. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I actually did my last two years of my undergrad there. My first two years of my undergrad, I did at Ryerson University. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I did a small stint in management consulting. And then I moved right into real estate. And that's what I've done. And what I've done and I continue to do since I graduated. Uh, so I, I run a real estate fund uh, where we own and manage real estate assets across Ontario. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually how I got into the cannabis industry. So I was an owner of 
I just finished buying an industrial building, which are an old industrial building in Mississauga, which I was going to convert to self storage. Mm-hmm. And then on the day that I, I closed that building, I went out for my lawyer took me out for a closing dinner. Mm-hmm. And uh, just in the process of the evening, we were like, hey, Sherry, what does uh, your husband do for a living? And, and uh, Sherry's name, my lawyer at the time. And, and she's like, actually, he just quit his job and he's getting into medical cannabis. Wow. This is August twenty. This is August twenty thirteen, mm-hmm. um, and I was like, something like a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, what's medical care? I mean, what do you mean? Like, I, I, I always thought this thing was illegal up until that conversation, mm-hmm. um, and then I went home and I did some digging, and uh, and I, I and I found out about uh, the fact that they were they were medically legalizing cannabis federally in Canada in in. April 2014, mm-hmm. and it was one of those aha moments where I was like, you know, there's an opportunity to be at the, the very start of an industry, in a very infant industry, and we were the first country, or, or the second country, I think Uruguay beat us to it, but we were the first, you know, G7 country to to enact this kind of federal legalization, so it just seemed like a, a, a big moment in time, and, and so I ended up converting that self-storage facility and I, I, it never became a self-storage facility it actually ended up becoming a company that i started with two other co-founders michael nashit and dj stepani mm-hmm. to become terrafin um so i was the ceo of that business from 2014 when we started it in january 2014 up until the point where we did uh change of control transaction or, or jason wild uh who's a you know, prolific cannabis investor from New York mm-hmm. uh, runs a hedge fund called JW Asset Management. Came in and took the controlling interest in our business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, so that was you know Act One in cannabis, which is the which is the Terrafin experience. You know, through that experience, I or we is never an I. We the you know we took the company public. We raised eighty million dollars in non broker private placement money. We took it through the full licensing process. Mm-hmm. Built out a facility and in in. Mississauga, uh, we took the company to an over billion dollar market cap, and you know it, it, was, it was an incredibly wild four and a half years of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that's immediately clear is that you're constantly at the forefront of any industry, just pushing the needle forward. And being a serial entrepreneur also means you've dealt with your fair share of adversity. What are some of the hurdles you've dealt with since entering the cannabis industry? And how did you navigate those waters and really use them to propel you to achieve the goals that you set out for yourself? The initial hurdles in the industry were, were all related to credibility, mm-hmm. you know, or things, things related to credibility. The government didn't really take it seriously. The people didn't take it seriously. It was more of a novelty. Uh, and then trying to raise money in that kind of an environment was extremely difficult. Uh, cannabis, especially early on, was a very capital-intensive process. Uh, you got to buy, you got to buy or lease factory. You got to put up all this brand new uh, expensive HVAC equipment or whatever, whatever it was that you were using to to build your facility out with. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, like the big, the biggest things in the beginning, outside of the standard entrepreneur stuff, which is you know money and time and uh, and competition, was was like things that stood out to me were the fact that the industry lacked uh, credibility and confidence. Like you, you're going into something that's completely blank slate. You know, how do you build out these facilities? How do you start your supply chain? You know, which parts do you focus on? Mm-hmm. The, and then dealing with all the regulations that the government brings. And the government is also trying to figure itself out in the process because this is new for them as well. And they're the first people in the world to enact it. So 
all eyes on them. So it, a lot of the initial challenges were just kind of related to a, a, a nascent industry starting. Mm-hmm. I think that for, for me, the people, a lot of people saw overwhelming odds when they were looking at that. And in my mind, I was, uh, what I saw was unparalleled opportunity. Like if everybody is seeing the same thing that we're doing, there's a fragmented market, no one really knows what they're doing, whatever. Like you can come in there and champion leadership. And if you want to be one of those first people and say, hey, guys, follow me. This is the way that I think we should do it. Mm-hmm. You could really carve out this disproportionately large piece of the market for yourself. Something else that you've you've you know kind of highlighted in just your last answer is that it was an, a group effort. It was a team effort, right? And being an entrepreneur also means that you're growing a business to create a greater vision. And to do this, it means relying on that team that you're talking about. What do you look for when surrounding yourself with other individuals to, you know, really achieve these visions? What do I look for? People that under that understand that in in the entrepreneurship world, it's very sink or swim. So even you know, people that are resilient that learn from mistakes. Th- those are those are kind of critical base things. Uh, and then specifically, I look for people that are experts in in the field that we're looking to take on. You know, for I'll give you an example from the track. You know, we we have an incredible team of executives that all specialize in very different parts of the business. Uh, what what we look for, what like what we make sure that we do is we surround ourselves with people that are so much better at the thing that they do than we could ever be. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm good at a certain set of skills, maybe capital markets, uh, you know, uh, uh, strategy development, things like that. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, am I the best salesperson? No, I'm not. You know, I, I don't even have the experience. I haven't spent a decade or two running or being a part of sales teams to, to know. Like, I, I've, I've been involved with sales teams in the past, but to, like, and to know enough to identify good talent. But that's kind of the most important thing, right? Is knowing who's going to actually fill the specific job that you're trying to do, mm-hmm. as opposed to really anything else being the primary candidate, especially when you're in, when you're in that early stage of a company, hiring those first couple of critical people is between success and failure. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Now, something you alluded to a little bit earlier in the conversation is that you led TerraSend from inception in January 2014 to a successful completion of 52.5 million non-broker private placement with JW Asset and Canopy Growth. Today, you're no longer with the company, but I was hoping you could walk us through that experience and highlight some of the process of raising capital. Sure. So that experience was... Uh especially the capital market side of that experience was something that, that I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the first time, like I said, I was 28 years old when I got into that, when we started that company and we took the company public when I was 30. It's the, I've never, I have zero experience with, with public markets. I have zero up to that point, very little experience with capital markets. The learnings from that are, are, are amazing, but the ones that, that truly stand out to me were, um, you know, and I'll break it down by equity raise. We ultimately ended up doing four equity raises and each one was, was relatively different. So we did an initial family and friends round, which was basically the seed capital that got us started. It was a $6 million round um, that was basically all of our family and friends taking bets on us. Uh, that one you usually give to your, you give at a good valuation because they're mm-hmm. taking the most risk with you. Mm-hmm. Um, then Immediately after that, once we once we built the facility and and we had something that was licensable, the market mm-hmm. appetite for cannabis stocks was extremely high. Mm-hmm. So we saw an opportunity to take to take advantage of this and get 
to raise additional capital at what we would consider a high valuation for for where our company actually was. It was a lot of the, the market was built on prospects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. So we went out and we raised another, call it four and a half million dollars to basically the first amount of money was just to get the facility built and get it to the point where where we can achieve a, a license. But we didn't have enough money to hire staff, do payroll, or like overhead anything. But once we got the license and we became a going concern, those things become necessary. And we talked to a lot of investment banks and no one paid any attention to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I, I take pride in the fact that we did our, our raises non-brokered, but at the time it was a gigantic failure because that just made, that meant that we couldn't find a broker to back us. Yeah. Right. So, so we went out and we raised our own money. We did our own marketing roadshows and all this stuff. And then honestly, it was a bit of a Mickey Mouse effort, uh, but it did achieve its goal in getting us like that four and a half million dollars. And then we got to the point where we could take the company public. So we we, kind of raised that money and took the company public simultaneously. And then what ended up happening was our stock took this, this, it takes whatever what kind of going public does in those upswing markets is it, it took our stock for a bit of a ride upwards yeah. mm-hmm. and then actually the worst part was we raised raised that second round at a dollar five a share and immediately once we did that raise because you're a public market company the stock took a price that a, a nosedive down to 80 cents mm-hmm. immediately after we did the raise so our investors that we still had an, an intimate relationship with because we didn't have a bank going in between us as an intermediary brokering the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's like we, we let them down immediately. And, and that feeling stuck with us for an incredibly long time. Every The, the thing about raising money, especially in public markets, is it, it's like your emotions, at least mine, were directly tied to the stock price. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that could be a big problem when you're trying to run a company because you start you start to focus on short-term gains versus long-term gains mm-hmm. that was the kind of the second round and then the third round which was the transformative round was that we took that four million dollars and we just kind of ignored that noise that was coming from outside mm-hmm. and we said we have four million bucks we got to get to a point where we're making some serious dollars so that somebody will take it seriously and then we'll see that that valuation, that credibility boost in the stock market, and that will allow us to raise additional capital to run the business more and more. To that end, uh, you know, I, I feel like we were blessed in that we met uh, Jason Wilde at the time that we did, and he was at the state of mind, and, and or he was at the state in his business logic where where he was ready to take some very he, up to that point, he'd been a passive investor in the cannabis industry, and he wanted a more active role. Mm-hmm. Um, and we built something that we're we were very proud of. You know, just uh, for all the car nuts out there, you know, we didn't have a Ferrari, but we had like a souped-up Toyota Supra <laughs> yeah. from Fast and the Furious. You yeah. know, like it, <laughs> it'll still win the race, but it's not it's, the sticker value is just different. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> So we, he, he recognized that and, 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 you know, he brought canopy to the table um, and all of a sudden we went from being this whatever stock to we have the attention of kind of two of the biggest investors in the space, both on the private equity side and on the operations side. Um, and then the way we structured that deal was, well, our stock's trading at 80 cents. Uh, we did a round at a dollar five. I don't want to see any of my investors lose money, so you guys got to come in at a dollar ten. And then what? And that was a low enough valuation for them to see the upside in the price. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a high enough valuation for me to save face with my investors. Uh, but and I knew the trade off to all that was that it, it, you know I'm basically selling my company. I'm, I'm Jason is going to become the the you know the head honcho of the business. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, at that point, that was okay with me because uh, sometimes you got you got to know when 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 the company is growing faster than the human, mm-hmm. uh, especially at the CEO position. That's a, that's a hard thing to recognize. But um, I was fortunate enough that I had enough good people around me to tell me that that this is probably the best thing. And I internally felt that it was the best thing that we could do for the business. So we did it. Mm-hmm. And then immediately the day that we announced it, the stock went from, you know, call it 70 cents to three bucks Wow! and yeah. everybody. And then it just continued to go up and up and up until it reached, I think a, a high of around $13. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jason has so much to do with all of that upswing. Um, but it was, a, it was an amazing experience. And from like a capital markets and capital raising perspective, uh, you never know where your money is going to come from. Mm-hmm. You know, like every single round of equity that we did was a completely different experience from the one before. Um, and there's so much learning to be done. Just, you know, if I think with that one, the key is don't worry about how many no's you get. Mm-hmm. All you need is usually one or two yeses. Yeah. And the other thing, it must have been emotionally for you, a sweet, sweet relief because, you know, you were able to come through for all those initial round investors. Dude, I'm like a hero within my community. It's, <laughs> it's uh, not like in any sense, but the fact that I made a few people money, it's, a, it's an excellent personal feeling. It's a great sense of accomplishment. Actually, the, the thing that I, the, the most joyous thing that I take away from that entire Terrathon experience, obviously building a company and, and, and giving like, all that, but the, one of the best things that I, that for me is is knowing that I made a bunch of people money. Mm-hmm. You know, like and they counted on me to do something, and they over delivered, and that was like that is a that's a great feeling. Now, something you believe in is a values based model. I was hoping you can walk us through this approach and why you believe it's effective, especially within the cannabis industry or building your businesses. Something that happened directly after the the Terrasan experience was I. Uh, went through a bit of an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, when you put your blood, sweat, and tears into a business for so long, it, it becomes a part of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and selling it uh, kind of started this emotional this, this emotional thought process where it's like, well, why, why? Ultimately, you did something for money. You know, like you, you, you did all of that transaction. And when it was like deep down inside, I'm like, I made that decision for, for monetary purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of made a commitment to myself that, you know, that was the right decision at the time and the situation that we were in. But it, now that that's over with and money is maybe not my, my, my biggest concern, it, you have a responsibility. It's like, what's going to wake you up every morning? Mm-hmm. You know, what, 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 what's going to get you out of bed to keep you motivated? Because at the time, money was my biggest motivation. But once money stops becoming your biggest motivation, what keeps you going? And I think that's where your values come in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Trek and Allmega, which are the two companies that I am involved with now, one on the real estate side and one on the cannabis side, their kind of core principles are based off values, which are trust, respect, equality, compassion. And those things are, it's actually the, it's the reason it's called Trek Brands is trust, respect, equality, compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is that, you know, the commitment that we make to you is not a financial one. It's actually, it's, it's deeper than that. You mm-hmm. know, you, you when you go do business with people, if you're not showing them, especially in this age of kind of like people are always like deep state and this is fake, or I don't know if this person's real and this, that, and the other thing that the best thing that you can do for yourself as a business mm-hmm. is identify that you're more than, you're not going to let that person down. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm going to come to the relationship and I'm going to bring trust, respect, equality, compassion. And in my mind, once I know I have those things as a baseline, let's talk about making some money together. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what I found is as 
we start to, as we started to apply that concept and build these businesses out, it becomes the cornerstone of every relationship that we have. And it dictates the relationships that we have with almost everybody. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to the importance of a value-based business, I think without knowing everybody runs a value-based business, whether they like it or not, because you don't want to be miserable in what you're doing. And if, and if you're going into work and you're doing something that's against your values, you're probably not happy and you're not going to stay there for a long time. But if you clearly identify these values, you know, or the company identifies the values that it believes in and gives you an opportunity to be like, I mesh with those values. I don't mesh with, with those values. Or it gives your, your partners or your, your other stakeholders an opportunity to be like, okay, this is what these people are about. And, and, and I can see them living their values, not just saying it. So this, this is another reason why we're going to want to do business together. In addition to the fact that you also have to be really good at the job that you're doing. Yeah. But that, that is the most that, that is the concept behind running a value based business. We're not uh, redefining the laws of physics here, mm-hmm. but I think just highlighting these things and putting them in the forefront, it's super important in, in, in making sure that the companies that you're involved in, at least for me, uh, like that, that, that needs to come to the forefront. And why it's important in the cannabis industry, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, we th- this is a very nascent industry. We have the opportunity to not have it look like you know all the things that you wish you could perfect about uh, the way one industry runs. You know, oh, I, I think uh, uh, I think they they they're they're too ha- they're too hard on the environment. You know, yeah. or or they 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 promote they promote uh, bad things to minors, all that stuff. You know, cannabis crosses a lot of those parallels mm-hmm. right and and it's the leaders of these businesses that will especially these, these young and growing businesses that will ultimately have an impact on, on like some very big thing you know it's not a big deal when you when you're selling 20 30 kilos of product a week mm-hmm. but say your company is the one that becomes the coca-cola of cannabis mm-hmm. or the general mills of cannabis or whatever if you haven't if you don't have that mindset you know like trust quality trust respect quality compassion what negative impact could might you accidentally leave on the world just by sheer scale of your operation, mm-hmm. you know? And then, and then to the contrary of that, if you actively think about that stuff, what positive inca- impact could you make if you give that consideration from the very beginning, which is kind of where the Trek brand 10% for good um, initiative comes in. Yeah. You, you know, we, we donate 10% of our profits to charity uh, or to causes uh, and we let the consumers select, uh, you know, not that we think it's going to be some monumental movement in 20, in 2020, mm-hmm. but we think that God willing, we're around till 2030 and we're still, you know, kick out cannabis company that's growing exponentially. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a pretty big number. Yeah. no, And I- that will change the world. It positively changes the world. Yeah, I think having that ethos and and having that authenticity and then, you know, it it coming down from the top all the way to the bottom, it really trickles into the consumer market. And like you said, can really create a a massive chain that can create this uh, amazing ripple effect. Now, you spoke about your transition from Terrace End and you've had your, your foot in real estate ventures as well as the cannabis industry. And as you alluded to, most recently Trek Brands, where you are the co-founder and chairman of Board of Directors. It is a socially conscious cannabis brand holding company which has successfully launched three brands, Wink, Blist, and Thumbs Up, with more products on the way. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about Trek's focus on using an asset light business model approach. So specifically to Trek, uh, 
I wasn't in the market to start a business that was going to be a direct competitor to Terrasense. You know, mm-hmm. my ties with Terrasense still run very deep, even though I'm not an active member of their operations or board. Uh, I'm still a large investor, and I believe that that we've built something amazing there. Mm-hmm. So my my intention was to be like, what's missing in the market? Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that was the thing that kind of kept resonating was the cannabis industry is extremely fragmented. You know, there's like three or 400 LPs just in Canada, not including all of the state by state LPs that, that are, that are in, in the U S um, and every single person specializes in a different piece of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to sales and marketing and just dealing with the consumer, you've spent the majority of your dollars, uh, you know, elsewhere in the supply chain, whether on, on more expensive, more essential parts, whether it's cultivation, uh, processing, uh, distribution, what even retail space, mm-hmm. right? So what we saw, we saw an opening in the in the market where we could come in and own what we believe is the most important part of the of the experience, which is the brand. Mm-hmm. We we want to own the thing that you are going to buy. So you know, I, I I'll use the example for Coca Cola. I want to own the the name Coke and potentially the IP behind the formulation, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily, as long as it's controlled and with with good quality assurance measures, I don't really care where the product is being packaged and and where my input materials are coming from and stuff like that. As long as I'm managing that process, Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily need to own those. So in late 2018, we proved that which was this model didn't exist, and we said, well, if we could be the first to do something like this, I Mm -hmm. think that's worth value. Uh, so that's exactly what we did is we, we launched Blist uh, as a female-focused brand mm-hmm. uh, because we thought it was an underserved market that would grow over time. Um, and we we sought to do contract manufacturing or white-label manufacturing uh, where, we, where we would use our vast contacts in the cannabis industry to kind of pick and choose best practices, best products, best devices, best whatever, mm-hmm. um, best packaging, and, and then put it toward, put it in front of the consumer in a bliss branded package. Um, and fortunately for us, the, that worked, you know, and what that's allowed us to do uh, from then till now is, that, you know, we've launched 10 SKUs across three different brands uh, while maintaining an extremely low overhead which allows us to bring these products to market at, you know, not so inflated of a price. And it also helps us to, to build relationships with upstream suppliers. So uh, the asset light model works for us because if you want to get into the cannabis industry and you don't have a hundred million dollars mm-hmm. or even $10 million, mm-hmm. you know, how do you do it? It's, it's like this. So, uh, and, and, and it still gives you an opportunity to own a very valuable piece of the supply chain. And if you lean into your strengths, uh, and work really hard, that that brand becomes more valuable. So that was the whole idea behind an asset light model. I want to get back into the cannabis industry, mm-hmm. making the most impact while spending the, less, the least amount of dollars. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Now, something that we talked about at the very beginning of the conversation is self-isolation and COVID. And at the moment, life has really taken a toll on businesses across Canada. 
The cannabis sector has also had to deal with its fair share of hurdles since the recreational market became available for consumers. And I was hoping we could address, you know, the current state and look a little bit more at the short term. I was wondering, what do you believe are some of the impacts that the latest list of essential services has had on the cannabis industry as a whole? I think it's been amazing for the cannabis industry because we were we were quickly added to the list of essential services. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do I wish that stores were open so that people can go in and, and pick up product uh, instead of doing a click and collect or mail order to delivery? Yes, but, you know, you got to take your wins when you can get them. People are at home a lot more. They mm-hmm. have a lot more free time on their hands. They're willing to experiment. You're, and that's for the people that haven't tried it before. And then for the people that have tried it, you know, what we're noticing is is they're buying more, but mm-hmm. they're buying kind of more in bulk order format. You know, so like if I'm going to do a mail order delivery, I'm just going to order a bunch of stuff as mm-hmm. opposed to going to the store and buying one or two products at a time. But outside of that, I don't, I don't think there's been a major drop off in sales, mm-hmm. um, at least as it relates to our brand. Yeah, definitely. And if we were to contrast that and kind of look a little bit more long term, what can companies do today to help build a balance sheet strength to respond to weather periods of economic uncertainties like the one that we're facing in today's world? A disciplined financial controls uh, would ultimately be the correct answer, but that's a lot easier said than done, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. when you plan, if you're if you're a planner and you plan appropriately, you'll never need to use the resources that you've put aside. But if you don't plan, or if you if you're kind of always full throttle, hoping that there's going to be either more money or that sales are going to continue or all of a sudden you haven't built a, a rainy day fund or some kind of a blanket, mm-hmm. then I think that's where you get in trouble. So you know that my advice would be. It's never the things that you're expecting that catch you off guard, you know, like as, as, as silly or as common sense as that is. It's always just something completely different. You know, no one predicted COVID was going to be the thing that messed up everybody's 2020 forecast and, and completely up, upended, you know, life as we know it. So it's just, it's just trying to build a bit of a cushion for that in, what, in whatever business model that you're in. Amongst many other hurdles that retailers have had to deal with, they're also consistently dealing with product delays. And this has been a huge issue amongst the industry. Do you believe that this is going to continue or do you expect this to change in the future? I think it's going to change in the future. Uh, I think uh, as the industry gets more mature and people get better at their jobs, you know, a product that took you six months from inception to, to being stocked on a shelf mm-hmm. might end up taking five months. It'll eventually start taking five months then four months and three months and two months, you know, it's, uh, until, until it's like, uh, it's reached its, its, its thing. But I, I definitely think there is room for improvement right now. Uh, but I'm, I'm very confident that especially over the next 12 to 18 months, you're going to start to see noticeable changes. Like when we look back at where the industry was 18 months ago, mm-hmm. where it is now, we've made leaps and bounds. So just think about that, that, that continue that, you know, that level of growth uh, or that exponential factor of growth applying to where we are now to where we'll be in 18 months from now. Um, I, I don't think we'll have any of the problems that we're, we're having now. I think we'll have different problems, but I think all the ones that we're facing right now, especially the bare minimum ones that are preventing people from getting into the industry, mm-hmm. they'll be gone. Now, Basim, one thing that's clearly evident from this conversation is just how busy you are. It seems like you're juggling a multitude of projects at really any given time. How have you managed to find a fine balance in life? I have an amazing team of people around me. Truly amazing. 
you know, from the, the people that help manage my schedule to the people that I rely on for operational support to, the, you know, everybody. It's, it's just about, like we said at the beginning, it's about surrounding yourself with good people. That's not just related to, to a company. It's really it's kind of everything you do in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the resounding answer that I'd like to give is a shout out to everybody around me that does amazing work that allows me to, to do a couple of things at once. You know, I, I, but I would like to say, I don't have a lot of things on the go. I just have two very big things on the go, but I, I love them both equally. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a huge passion for cannabis and I think real estate is the cornerstone of everything that I do. So, uh, you know, I, I, that was my balance was finding a way to marry those two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then you just gotta, you gotta kind of want it. It's not, it's not a life for everybody. I can assure you that. And, and just to jump on that, if you had three tips that you could give to entrepreneurs jumping into any industry, whether it's cannabis or it's real estate, what would those three tips be? The first two are easy. Recognize that failure is the start of the process, you know, and don't stop there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, and then the second piece is when, like, don't let failure prevent you from proceeding. It's only over if you give up. And then the second piece of that is you have to take real time to sit back and understand the learnings from failure. If you can do those two things, because failure is going to be a thing that you always experience. Mm -hmm. If you can find a way to remove the emotional connection with failure of making you feel like, you know, you're, you're not worth it or this isn't working or I'm going to go try something else or whatever. If you can get over that Mm -hmm. and then also take a, you know, a hindsight look at everything that happened to, to lead up to that failure and, and, and establish learning. Mm-hmm. Um, those two points alone will ensure that at some point you achieve success. And then the third tip is don't give up. If, if you really want it, don't give up. Don't let anybody talk you down. Um, you know, and it's okay to look up to people, but don't be afraid of people. Uh, like I used to have this big complex when I, I would meet with somebody that in my mind I perceived to be like, uh, you know, influential or famous or, or like a, a big deal in business or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that it, it, it's almost like I would, I would paralyze myself and become a different version of myself. So I couldn't perform, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't tell them about my business. I couldn't have a good conversation with them. I couldn't, whatever. Um, and then you just kind of get, for me, it was just like getting over myself and getting over my fear of that. And, and, just realizing that everybody's a normal person, even the super successful people put their pants on one leg at a time. So like, don't, don't sweat that stuff. If you're anything like me, that was a big deal for me. So uh, (laughs) getting over that helped me kind of level up. Yeah. I think everyone deals with that. It's it's a huge issue. And I really appreciate those words. Uh, Definitely going to inspire and motivate a lot of different listeners. Before we let you go, it was a really an amazing pleasure having you on the Shake Podcast. But we have one question we like to ask all of our guests. Is there a piece of technology, a book, or a past experience that has helped shape who you are today? A book that fundamentally shifted my life was uh, Rockefeller's autobiography, mm-hmm. uh, which I happened to read in August 2013 when I was learning about medical cannabis, because that was a bit of a right place, right time moment. And it allowed me to understand that, you know, when you think about Rockefeller mm-hmm. or any business, um, you know, once you hear the, the, the grassroots inception story mm-hmm. of, of what it took to build this and like kind of the, the, the fortunate series of events that happened to, to, 
to make a business the way it is. It was, it was, yeah, that book at that time, that's the best advice I can give anybody. If anybody could have a learning moment or an aha moment like I did that day, that, that would be, uh, be a good piece of advice to leave with. We want to give a huge thank you to Basim Hana for joining the Shake podcast presented by Treehouse Solutions. We also want to thank our loyal Shake listeners for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. You can join the discussion or drop us a line at www.treehousesolution.com and on Instagram at the Shake Podcast. Please also check out our parent Instagram at Trio Solution. And if you're a huge sports fan and love cannabis or everything in between, we have you covered. Check out our latest channel at Sports Cannabis on Instagram. If you're on Twitter, follow us at THS underscore audio. Be sure to look out for our next episode when we chat with another industry-leading representative. We hope you enjoyed our session. Stay tuned for our next podcast.